Hello and welcome to A Murderous Affair, the podcast where we talk about women in history known for mayhem and murder. After tragedy struck and my computer broke and I wasn't able to record anything that didn't sound awful as you guys heard in my last episode, I decided to take a break, but now we're back and we will be going to weekly episodes once again. Before we jump into this episode, I would like to say that I hope everyone is staying sane and safe and healthy. You know, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer that has at least 60% alcohol, and let's not panic, guys. You know, I feel like there's a gray area we should be in. Not quite, this is nothing and we don't need to worry, and not quite, I'm gonna stock up on all the toilet paper for the next 10 years. I feel like there's a middle ground that we should be in. Just precautious and using common sense. I also humbly suggest that if you're stuck at home and have nothing to do, then now would be a good time to maybe go back and listen to your favorite episodes of A Murderous Affair that have been uploaded so far. Or if you want, you can go and buy official A Murderous Affair merchandise on frumiusreads.com forward slash shop. We've got really cool shirts there, and I swear that's the last self-promo-y plug that I'm doing. Alright, now on to our murders of the day. Mary Manning. The resources for this episode are from capitalpunishmentuk.org, the southwarknews.com.uk, michaelair.com has a uh, has some actual like a book of the uh, transcription of what happened in the courtroom on the day that the Mannings were sentenced. And of course we've got Murderpedia, which I kind of just say, I don't think I've ever explained. So Murderpedia is basically Wikipedia, but for all murder related crimes are included on Murderpedia. Mary Mary, also known as Maria, according to some accounts, was born Mary Laroe in Switzerland, 1821. Her parents died sometime around the 1840s and she emigrated to Britain to work as a servant. She began her work as a maid for Lady Anna Polk of the Halden House in Devon, which was a gigantic country estate that was mostly demolished later on in the 1920s. After some time working there, she then began working as a lady's maid for a woman known as Lady Blantyre. Now, Lady Blantyre was the daughter of the Duke and Duchess of Sutherland and she was extremely wealthy. Queen Victoria herself was known to make stock at the house and Mary was able to enjoy a life of luxury and status that was enormously higher than a majority of other women at the time. It was on a trip that she was taking with the Lady Blantyre that she met Patrick O'Connor, the man who would be both her lover and her victim. Between 1845 or 1846, she crossed the English Channel on a boat with her mistress where the 50-something Patrick O'Connor worked as a sailor. He was fairly well off and it was his wealth and status that immediately attracted him to Murray. Around this time, Murray was also involved with a railway guard who was closer to her age named Frederick Manning. Both Frederick and Patrick 
enjoyed telling people that they were off to see Marie at the Stafford house. Now, although Marie was interested in both of these men, there were qualities to them that extremely frustrated her. Patrick was already well off, but he was an alcoholic and had a temper, as well as being quite a bit older than her. Whereas Frederick was closer to her age, but he had a job that didn't make as much as Patrick's did, and he was the weaker willed of the two men. However, according to Fred, he was due to come into an inheritance from his mother and he actually proposed to her and made that a huge case for his proposal. In the end, due to Patrick dragging his feet a little, Marie agreed to Fred's proposal and the pair were married in St. James Church in Piccadilly. Soon after the wedding, Patrick sent a letter to Marie declaring his love for her and claiming that he had been about to propose, but Fred beat him to it. While it's unsure if his intentions were true or not behind that letter, it definitely wasn't a good start for the newlyweds marriage. The couple bought a home at Miniver Place, and it was at this point that Marie realized that Fred had exaggerated his inheritance. He wasn't due to come in to the amount of money that he had claimed. When she found out, she renewed her relationship with Patrick O'Connor, and this relationship was also something that her husband seemed to know about. In fact, Patrick would even come over and have dinner with the couple at their house multiple times. Soon into the marriage, Fred was either fired or just decided to leave his job as a guard for the railway company. He took his savings and the couple opened an inn known as the White Heart. And the inn didn't do as well as expected, but not for a reason that I would have ever guessed. Let's go to New Year's Day, 1849. The Great Western Train made its journey from Plymouth to London, and while on that journey, there was a robbery. A total of 4,000 pounds were stolen, and this was back when around 100 pounds was enough to live on yearly. And they would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for the fact that criminals are a greedy bunch, and they tried to do the same trick with another train the following day. Unfortunately for the thieves, this time there was a railway guard there who was slightly more adept at his job, and he ended up catching them. The thieves turned out to be two men, Henry Poole and Edward Nightingale. And for those wondering how they relate back to our very own Marie and Fred Manning, we're going to get to that right now. See, apparently both Henry and Edward had recently stayed at the White Hart Inn, and Edward had used Fred Manning's name as an alias multiple times. Both of the Mannings were brought in for questioning, but eventually they were cleared from any involvement. Now, even though they didn't have any involvement, word got out and their reputation was completely shot. Business crashed due to people in the area not wanting to stay in a place where there was a possibility of being robbed, even if that was a rumor and not based on the truth. Because of the loss in business, the two of them ended up moving back to Fred's hometown of Bermondsey. Fred tried to open a bar, but once again, it wasn't so successful. I guess you could say that with the closing of the White Hart Inn came the beginning of the end for Mary Manning. She started working as a dressmaker and, and the married couple took in renters when they could. This wasn't the ritzy and glamorous life that Mary dreamed of living, especially compared to the way that she had been used to living as a lady's maid. Now, one of these renters was a medical student and his stay was extremely short-lived. He had a couple of disturbing encounters with Fred Manning where Fred would ask about the effects of chloroform and whether or not someone would be able to sign over money if they were drugged. Marie was only being slightly less subtle. In late July, there was a large delivery of lime delivered to her house, and on August 8th, Marie brought a shovel. You guys can probably guess where this is going. So, the night of August 8th, 
Mary invites Patrick over to her house for dinner. You've gotta admit that the fact that it was a normal enough occurrence for her to invite her lover to dinner while her husband it was home is an extremely ballsy move. Like, it happened often enough not to send up any red flags when she invited him to dinner with herself and her husband. However, on August 8th, Patrick ruined her plans by bringing a friend with him that night. So, Marie invited him back again for dinner on August 9th, the following evening. That night, Patrick showed up by himself and the plan was on. According to later statements, the plan was that when Patrick arrived, Marie greeted him and walked him into the kitchen. When they were there, she told him that he better wash his hands before dinner, and it was when he turned his back to her to face the sink that she pulled out a gun and shot him in the head. Marie and Frank then pulled up the flagstones in the kitchen to reveal the pre-dug grave they had made for Patrick O'Connor. But when they went to move him, they realized that the shot to the head hadn't actually killed him. So. Fred took that new shovel that Marie had bought and beat Patrick until he was dead, for real this time. According to some sources, he may have used a crowbar instead of a shovel, but whatever it was, it was enough to ensure that he was officially dead. They dumped his body into the grave and then covered him in lime in hopes that it would help the body decompose faster. The next day, on the 10th, Marie talked her way into where Patrick had been living getting the landlady to let her into his rooms and picking through his belongings to find valuables and other things to sell. When Patrick didn't show up to work, his colleagues began to worry. Patrick was a very punctual person and had never missed a day of work. After two days of not showing up, two of his co-workers began to investigate. One of those co-workers was also his cousin, and he knew that Patrick had been seeing a girl named Marie. After talking to Patrick's landlord and hearing that a woman named Marie had been coming by his place, the cousin and the other co-worker went by the Manning's house to see if they knew where Patrick had gone. Marie admitted to having seen him on the 8th for dinner, but denied having dinner with him or seeing him at all on the 9th. The two men went away, but didn't really believe what they'd heard, and they went straight to the police to file a missing persons report. At this point, the Mannings began freaking out. Marie demanded that Fred begin selling all of their furniture and the rest of their valuables so that they would have money, and as soon as he left to do so, she packed everything valuable that she could carry and went to the King's Cross Railway Station, where she tried to take a train to Edinburgh. Frederick, when he returned and realized that his wife had left him behind, decided his best option was to leave the country, and he also fled. When the police realized that the Mannings were, had made a run for it, they conducted a search on their house, and it was as they were searching the kitchen that they noticed something was off with the flooring. They pried up the floor, and that was when they found Patrick O'Connor's body. There was a manhunt after them now. Tons of newspapers were covering the story, and that was actually part of the reason that Fred got caught. A friend of his from London actually recognized him while Fred was trying to escape. After having read the newspaper story about the murders, and he went to the police who were able to capture and arrest Fred. When Fred was arrested, he told the police, quote, I never liked him, O'Connor, so I battered his head in with a ripping chisel, which in American is referred to as a crowbar. Meanwhile, Marie was arrested once she reached Edinburgh. The valuables that she had taken from Patrick's place included some railway stock that he had bought. And when she tried to sell it to other brokers, 
it had already been reported stolen. Another nail in her coffin, so to speak, was the fact that she took a cab to the train station. And no, actually not one train station, but two train stations. She had the cab driver take her to one train station, where she dropped off two trunks, and then had the driver take her to King's Cross, where she caught her train to Edinburgh. The police ended up finding the trunks that she had dropped off, because even back then, dropping off luggage at a train station and then just leaving it there was suspicious. And when they opened it, they found that it was filled with bloody clothes, presumably from the night of the murder. Both were taken to jail. Marie was the more suffer-in-silence type, at least at first. Fred, however, was definitely more talkative. He was extremely excited to hear that his wife had been arrested and immediately claimed innocence, saying that she was the one who had done everything and he had nothing to do with it. But of course, it was Marie that the press latched onto. She'd worked in fancy houses, she was foreign, and of course, she was attractive. So that added to the morbid intrigue surrounding this entire situation. So much so that black silk temporarily went out of fashion as it was the last color and fabric that Marie was seen wearing. The trial took place and both parties ended up blaming each other. Back then, it was tradition to ask if the people on trial had anything to say before their judgment. Fred declined saying anything, but Marie, on the other hand, definitely had something to get off her chest. She went off at the judge saying that there was, quote, no judgment justice and no rights for a foreign subject in this country. Her whole argument was that because she had not been born in England, she did not need to be tried in England and they should send her back to her native country in order to be put on trial. However, the judge ruled against this by saying that she had married an English man and therefore had English citizenship through that marriage. Anyway, she continued on to say that if she was to kill any man, it would have been her husband Fred because of how miserable he had made her life. Unsurprisingly, the judge didn't sympathize. Instead, after a 45-minute deliberation, both Mary and Fred were charged with murder and sentenced to death. In an attempt to escape her impending doom, Marie wrote letters to her old employers, who had connections with the Queen. She begged them to ask her for a pardon or for leniency, but the letters were returned to her unopened. In a last desperate attempt, Marie tried to kill herself the night before she was due to be executed. She waited until the middle of the night when she thought her prison guards were asleep and then began scratching at her throat in an attempt to cut a vein. One of the prison guards caught her and it took three guards to subdue her. The execution date was set for Tuesday, November 13th, 1849. The couple met each other in the prison chapel and apparently they parted on good terms. Fred had supposedly told her that he didn't want their last words to be angry and she supposedly kissed him before they were sent out. I say supposedly because so far I've only seen that account in one article and I haven't been able to verify it anywhere else, so take that with a grain of salt. The two were to be hung at a place called Horsemonger Lane Gowl, which had a flat roof. Apparently more than 30,000 spectators gathered here to witness the first ever married couple to be executed together. Around 500 policemen were also supposedly there trying to keep some kind of order. Once again, I would take these statistics with a grain of salt because newspapers at the time and a lot of records tend to inflate 
and uh, dramatize stories. One of the people there was Charles Dickens, and he wrote about how there was a ton of people who had gathered to watch this display. And his account was actually printed in the Times, and I want to read it here for you guys because I think that he really gathers the whole situation pretty well. So, according to Charles Dickens, quote, I was a witness to the execution at Horsemonger Lane this morning. I went there with the intention of observing the crowd gathered to behold it, and I had excellent opportunities of doing so at intervals throughout the night and continuously from the daybreak until after the spectacle was over. I believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd could be imagined by no man and could be presented in no heathen land under the sun. When I came upon the scene at midnight, the shrillness of the cries and howls that were raised from time to time, denoting that they came from a concourse of boys and girls already assembled in the best places, made my blood run cold. When the day dawned, thieves, low prostitutes, Ruffians and vagabonds of every kind flocked onto the ground with every variety of offensive and foul behavior. Fightings, faintings, whistling, imitations of punch, brutal jokes, tumultuous demonstrations of indecent delight when swooning women were dragged out of the crowd by the police with their dresses disordered, gave a new zest to the general entertainment. When the sun rose brightly as it did, it gilded thousands upon thousands of upturned faces so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink from himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. And when Frederick Manning ascended the steps leading to the drop, his limbs tottered under him and he appeared scarcely able to move. Upon his wife approaching the scaffold, he turned around, his face toward the people, while Calcraft, who was the executioner, proceeded to draw over his head the white nightcap and adjust the fatal rope. The executioner then drew another nightcap over the female prisoner's head and, all the necessary preparations now being completed, the scaffold was cleared. Being now completed, the scaffold was cleared of all its occupants except the two wretched beings doomed to die. The mob fell hushed and silent as Calcraft swiftly drew the bolt. All eyes fixed on the two hooded and noosed figures silhouetted against the morning sky. The trap opened and the bodies dropped, swaying and twisting slowly with the momentum of their fall and dying almost immediately. Apparently this left such an impression on Charles Dickens that he actually later based one of his characters, Mademoiselle Hortense, who was Lady Dedlock's maid in Bleak House, on Mary Manning's life. Apparently this was also such an exciting event that one woman actually died of being crushed in the crowd. In the worst kind of irony, it was also a tradition at the time for those who were hanged to be buried in graves lined with lime in the prison graveyard to stop the odor of decomposition. So Mary, along with her husband, was buried in the same way that they had hoped to dispose of Patrick O'Connor. And that is the story of the Bermondsey Horror and Mary Manning. That was a bit of an interesting one. I know I mentioned it a little earlier, but this was the first ever execution of a married couple for murder. And I just think it's really interesting how a lot of these authors that we now regard as being classic authors witnessed or lived through these kind of events. Either way, I would love to know what you thought of this episode. P please feel free to comment wherever you're listening to this, to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, basically any social media. 
You can find me at Frumius Reads. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date as to when all of our new episodes are uploaded every week. You can listen to this wherever you find podcasts, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Libsyn, Spotify, any of those, or you can go directly to the podcast homepage at frumiusreads.com forward slash a dash murderous dash affair. Thank you guys so much for listening and for coming back to this podcast, even with all the tech difficulties and terrible, terrible sound quality that I have had previously. I really appreciate it and I love talking about true crime and these kind of historical women that not a lot of people know about with you guys. Shout out to the history-loving murderinos for giving me suggestions on this week's episode. You guys are great, and I love the Murderino community, so thank you so much for that. But that's all I have for you guys today. Stay spooky, friends, and I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye.